Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you be a missionary disciple in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio for the Bridge Builder Program is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you have a really blessed Labor Day weekend. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio, AM 1330 at 11 a.m. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting public life, and we answer your questions through our mailbag segment. You can email those questions to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org, or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with a practical way that you can build bridges in public life. It seems that uh, in today's society, we're talking about legalizing everything that once used to be considered a vice. Uh, We've discussed uh, assisted suicide, marijuana. Uh, This week, we're talking about the growing discussions around legalizing prostitution. Out of 50 states, only Nevada has legalized prostitution and then only some of its counties. But this year, however, and in a number of states and jurisdictions such as New York and Washington, D.C., there are decriminalization bills, questions around the decriminalization of prostitution um, and legalization of it are being uh, heard in the Democratic presidential debates. And there's just a really growing discussion around this question and a really complex issue that needs unpacking because of the nexus between prostitution and human trafficking. Joining us on the line now from New York City is Madeline Kearns. Madeline is a William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at National Review. She's originally from Glasgow, Scotland, and is a trained singer. She's the author of the recent highly praised article, Don't Legalize Prostitution. It will only make the problem worse. And she's with us today to unpack this issue and say a little bit more about the movement and some of the consequences uh, seen and unforeseen that it may have. Thanks for joining us this morning, Madeline. Thank you. Good morning. What do you think is going on in the social and political landscape that we're seeing an acceleration around discussions and political movements to legalize prostitution? So I think that there's a narrative being pushed by uh, certain activists, and it's uh, this narrative to do with sex work. And sex work, of course, uh, is a kind of catch-all phrase. It it doesn't only include prostitutes, uh, who are overwhelmingly female, but it also includes uh, pimps and um, brothel owners, buyers, and that sort of thing. And the idea around sex work is that it is a liberating empowering form of work just like any other really and that we need to stop having a taboo about it we need to start being able to promote it celebrate it and of course that begins with legalizing it do you think that there's a greater demand for prostitution than there has been in the past there seems to be a growing uh, dynamic of the commodification of the human person the growth in pornography growth in human trafficking is there a greater demand is that uh, pushing this as well well I, I don't know about a greater demand for prostitution per se i mean it's obviously the oldest industry in the world it's, it's always going to be with us it always has been with us I certainly think, though, that there is a definite cultural push of, of the, as you put it, commodification of sex. So the just the objectification of women is everywhere. You know, things that would have counted as softcore pornography are now in mainstream movies. And so there's a kind of hyper-sexualized culture, which is definitely exacerbating the problem. 
it seems that you have feminists on both sides of this issue. Why do you think that's the case? And what is the conceptual distinction that some feminists might make as opposed to others who oppose so-called sex work? Sure. So fem- feminism has had uh, various schisms uh, caused by various issues over the past 50, 60 years. And this is obviously one of the one of the main ones is how they feel about prostitution. And on the one side, you have uh, self-described radical feminists who believe that it is inherently and inexcusably exploitative and is really uh, doesn't benefit women. And those those women, in my experience, uh, tend to uh, actually follow the evidence and sort of speak to survivors and and so they they really object to it on on grounds of their feminist principles. But then on the other side, you have the kind of intersectionalist feminists or the sex positive feminists, as they call themselves. And these are people who kind of think that actually women can behave like men and they should be able to to feel powerful and and get rich off of selling their bodies, which is is one argument. But actually, in in reality, it's not actually even how it plays out because. Uh, most of the most of the women who do end up in prostitution are not from good backgrounds. They're not from uh, loving families, or you know, they don't don't have college degrees. Many of them, and so it's it's just a bit of a fantasy, to be honest. That that side of things, but it's a it's a popular it's a popular cause, and um, it's promoted by all sorts of uh, people with with money and influence, and and so that's how you see it sort of taking off. Your comments raise an important point that it seems that many seem to be operating on a very denuded conception of consent or the idea that women would choose to get into prostitution. In that vein, is there a difference between legalizing prostitution and decriminalizing prostitution? And what I mean by that is, should we recognize that minors, women, and even occasionally men involved are often vulnerable persons and victims of human trafficking? And rather than arresting them and diverting them into the criminal justice system, we divert them into human services programs and perhaps on the other side, increase penalties on pimps, johns, and traffickers? Sure. Yeah, this is a really crucial point, actually, on on the policy level. So, through my research, I was trying to figure out what the various ways of dealing with with the problem are. And of course, as you point out, there's legalization, which basically is when the state regulates when, where, and how uh, the the sex transactions um, can take place. Uh, and then you have um, obviously criminalization, which is the model that most U.S. states, except for some counties in Nevada have where everybody's sort of treated the same, well, not the same, um, but it is illegal to both purchase sex and to sell sex. If it was, those were the only choices, I would I would tend towards criminalization just because I think that um, it, it makes it so much worse when you, when you kind of open the floodgates. But there is a third way, and the third way is something known as the Nordic model. And this started in Sweden in, in 1999. And basically what the Nordic model is, is where you uh, make it criminal to buy sex and to be a pimp or a brothel owner or something like that. But it is not, it is decriminalized to sell your own body. And the thinking behind that was simply, as you laid out perfectly there, that these women, um, that these vulnerable people, uh, certainly children, they, they require rehabilitation services. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I come down with the third way. I think that the Nordic model has been very successful both in helping those who need to be helped and in actually lessening the overall scale of sex trafficking in the countries where it's been tried. Why do you think it's the case that uh, just as we're still really in the throes of the Me Too movement and all those discussions, on the flip side, we're also talking about 
decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution? Doesn't there seem to be an inconsistency there in how we treat and objectify women? Oh, there's there's so many inconsistencies. I mean, how, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, for me, the, the way I've written about this and thought about this in the past is the, the problem I have with, with the with the Me Too movement is not necessarily its diagnosis of the problem or many of the efforts, which I think have been by and large good, but it is this philosophical inconsistency, which is that we are, are in a culture now that permits everything but forgives nothing. Permits everything but forgives nothing. And we know, we know that consent culturally, I'm not talking legally now, but culturally consent is not sufficient as a moral standalone. We can't have it both ways. We can't say that sex is this really trivial thing, but, you know, it, it, it's absolutely the worst thing in the world if somebody's raped or if somebody's molested. Like, obviously those two things don't work out. They, they, they contradict one another. And so I think it's just people just sort of select the arguments as it suits their purposes. So, yeah, you're quite right. The same people pushing sex work are the first people to criticize and condemn what was happening with Jeffrey Epstein, for example. Um, But for me, I think I think both are both are bad, you know, and and we, we need to be able to stand up and say that in a way that is logically coherent. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised that in a secularizing or de-Christianizing society, uh, the lack of forgiveness. Uh, everything's permitted, but everything is. Uh, there's nothing that's forgiven as well, right? Um, sins, yeah. sins of 30 years ago cannot be expunged, even if they were permissible uh, 30 years ago. So another effect of secularization and de-Christianization, and, and maybe that is a part of the answer to my next question, is, which is why do you think when we talk about um, the legalization of various forms of what used to be called vice. There are so few people who are willing to talk about renewing our cultural and moral, like moral ecology, to fight the commodification of human persons and that throwaway culture that Pope Francis always talks about. Why is the why is the solution that's always uh, proposed to these things legalization and regulation as opposed to working at the cultural level and uh, maintaining uh, legal and cultural prohibitions and taboos on these things? Well, I think, I think it's two things. I think the first is it's a sort of culture of low expectations. So people just think, well, you know, it's unrealistic. Nobody, nobody's ever going to, you know, learn to keep it in their pants. So we might as well just lower the standard to, to where people are at. That's, that's thinking. Second thing is, is fair to say the culture is very uh, hostile to uh, traditional religion. And, and part of that has obviously been to do with, with things that have happened in this area within like the Catholic Church and, and, and various other churches, which have caused great scandal and, and understandably put some people off. But I think there is hope here. And I've been very encouraged by the work of people such as um, Jordan Peterson, or, or even, even in, in, in some ways, I know he's much more directly uh, theological, but Bishop Barron. And these are people who are, they're way in to responding to people's needs in the culture and, and rescuing them from these low expectations is actually psychology. Um, because we know that uh, sex psychologically, especially for women, is not trivial. You only have to read um, Tolstoy, Anna Karenina, or, you know, Greek <laughs> history. And, and sex is a, is a big deal. It's, it's dynamite. It's the stuff that, that launched a thousand ships. You know, this is not a trivial thing. And I think when those... Uh, explanations are given in psychological terms, people are actually very responsive because it resonates with them and they know it to be true and they, if, if they've had sufficient 
negative experience with it, they're actually, I think, willing to make some changes in their lives uh, in the interest of of self-help, if nothing else. Here in Minnesota, Madeline, we haven't embraced the Nordic model fully, but we've gone a lot farther than other places in terms of decriminalization, especially uh, for minors and diverting those uh, young women into human services programs. Um, But we've also worked uh, to connect legislatively pornography and human trafficking. Where do you see the connections in your reporting on the issue of uh, prostitution between prostitution, human trafficking, pornography? How is prostitution connected to other types of criminal activity? Sure. Well, the the first thing to say is that there's actually quite good data uh, on this. There's a study I quoted in my piece um, by World Development, which it was asking the question, uh, it compared to 116 countries, and asked the question, does uh, legalizing prostitution increase sex trafficking? And it found that it did, because what happens is there is a substitution effect where legal prostitutes um, take over the, the work that, the illegal prostitutes or sex trafficked prostitutes were doing. But at the same time, there's a scale effect where we basically expand the demand and the market. And so the scale effect outweighs the substitution effect, and therefore you end up with way more sex trafficking. Um, to, to your second point about uh, pornography, well, unfortunately, the internet has obviously worsened this problem tenfold. I mean, we now have, uh, it's just very easy to uh, order sex online, like as, as if you're sort of ordering a pizza or something. And it's um, it's much more dangerous as well for kids because, uh, you know, there's nothing really to stop any girl from being enticed online by um, by, a, by a pimp. And because often these pimps use manipulative techniques where they sort of flatter the girl and make her feel like she's in a relationship with him. Um, and so there's there's new dangers that, that law enforcement and uh, the FBI are are trying to get on top of, and obviously um, two years ago, the Trump administration um, passed uh, FOSTA, SESTA, which w- was was to um, uh, remove Backpage.com and to, um, or sorry, to to hold third parties' uh, internet sites um, accountable for for illegal activity that happens um, on their sites. So there's there's steps being done um, to that, but there's yeah, there's as you as you say, there's definite overlap. Madeline, your writing on this issue of prostitution and sex trafficking has not only uncovered the dark underbelly, but you've also uh, shown places of hope and people who are doing good things and coming to the aid of trafficking victims and working to uphold their dignity. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how can other Catholics and others do more to combat prostitution and sex trafficking? Sure. So actually, I was so I did the, the big report that you're referring to. I, I went to L.A. and I did a ride around with um, LAPD, but also I went to uh, different uh, women's shelters and rehabilitation services. And one place in particular really stood out. It was a place called, um, it was in Long Beach, and it was called Gems Uncovered. And this was run by a Christian mum for, and she told me um, that she had, had basically gone to a community meeting where sex trafficking was mentioned. And she had known nothing about it. And she, and, and she thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is happening right under my nose. And I hadn't done anything. And she felt a great calling to, to go and do some work on this. And, um, and I think one of the things which was really interesting talking to her was that she was saying, I think if more people knew what to look for, they would, they would um, do more about it. They would um, ask people, you know, are you okay? Like, um, 
are you are you here by choice? Like, have you heard of these services and things like that? So, obviously, there's um, there's lots of practical things that can be done, uh, and I would just invite people to sort of um, look up in their local areas, like where who, who's doing what to tackle this problem. Because I really I have to say, like, I think most of what happens. I mean, we can talk about legislation, we can talk about policy. It's all very important, but most of the good work that happens is grassroots. It is individual one-on-one um and i said to to the the director of gems uncovered i said do you ever feel kind of that um it's hopeless and that you're never really going to make a dent on the problem and she said well no because i see every human being as having dignity and worth and so even if we only ever helped one girl which can help a lot more than that but even if we only ever helped one girl it would be worth it and and i think that's something that i find very encouraging as well We've had the pleasure of speaking with Madeline Kearns this morning. She is the William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at National Review, and she has been writing about prostitution and sex trafficking and what's going on there. And a really helpful article, Don't Legalize Prostitution, It Will Only Make the Problem Worse, uh, was the subject of our conversation today, which you can find in National Review. She writes at the Catholic Herald and other places and really is a fantastic journalist who you should be following. Madeline, thanks for being with us today and talking about this really difficult and challenging issue. Sure, thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we're going to dive into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to us at our email for the show, show at mncatholic.org. Our producer, Kit, has those questions and collects them, and she's got one for today. What have you got, Kit? So the topic being addressed in this week's mailbag is school choice legislation. Doug contacted us through our Facebook page, which all of you can do as well, He had a concern that a bill to provide tax credits to people and to organizations who donate to scholarship granting organizations, that it would harm public schools because it allows parents to pull students out of public schools and thereby, he says, decreases funding to those public schools. So, Jason, could you help our listeners better understand how these tax credits for school choice would actually work and why it isn't taking money away from those public schools? Sure. I'm going to start with answering the more specific question and then speak at the level more generally of the principle here that's involved. And regarding Doug's questions, it's one that we often hear is that school choice programs take money away from public schools. Uh, The proposal that the Minnesota Catholic Conference supports uh, in partnership with our Alliance Opportunity for All Kids is called the Opportunity Scholarship Tax Credit. And what it does is allow private individuals and organizations, corporations, to give money to private scholarship granting organizations uh, to give uh, scholarships to students and families to attend private schools. So one important point here is these are tax credits. Uh, They're not vouchers or payouts or anything else like that. Uh, Private money going to private organizations given to private individuals to attend private schools. The money never hits the treasury uh, to be perfectly specific about it. The tax system is independent to a degree of how we fund public schools. And in fact, no money that supports these programs 
or um, is dedicated in the budget to tax credits for opportunity scholarships is taken away from public schools or the education budget. And indeed, education spending in the education budget continues to increase uh, every single year. So money is not taken out of the Treasury, uh, nor is it taken out of the public school budget to provide these opportunity scholarship, again, tax credits, uh, not vouchers, to uh, low- and middle-income families to attend non-public schools. One thing to keep in mind, though, too, is that um, you know one might say, well, that money could be used. It would otherwise go to the Treasury if it wasn't given out in tax credits and could be diverted uh, to public schools. Now, that is true, but at the same time, one has to remember that, oh, in the long run, uh, putting more kids in private schools actually saves the state money because the state doesn't need to educate them. The idea that public schools lose money uh, because their per-pupil funding mechanism uh, is based on students and enrollment, um, remember that the state then doesn't have to educate that child. So the state actually saves money um, when a child goes to a non-public school. So the non-public school system saves the state a bunch of money. Imagine if a non-public schools were to shut down and all those kids would be dumped on the state uh, to educate, uh, your taxes would go up incredibly. <laughs> the revenue that would be needed to uh, educate those kids would go up significantly. So this idea that we're taking money away from public schools uh, not only is not true in the short term, but it's also not true in the long term, and such programs may actually end up saving the state money. But the question is, is often one that we hear, and so we should speak also at the level more generally of principle which is, are we taking money away from the public schools? And are we hurting public schools? And we need to have a a paradigm shift in how we think about education, away from systems and more about kids. Uh, You'll often hear about education funding and education programs, and if we only fully fund education, if we only do this, that eventually everything will be better and our teachers will have all the tools they need, and it's just funding, funding, funding. And we're again, we're thinking at the level of systems and because people are ideologically devoted to the system as a way of uh, taking kids out of the prejudices of their home and family and cultural life and bringing them into the common mentality of what it means to be an American today. That's why we had public schools as they were um, uh, ways in which we indoctrinated Americans to be good citizens and good capitalists uh, with good old fashioned King, the good old fashioned King James Bible and and the Protestant work ethic, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now we have a different set of values and the United States today, and it's not uh, the old Protestant values that govern the public schools uh, from years and years ago. Uh, And it's one, in fact, that's actually hostile to uh, the well-being of the children, the dignity of the human person, and the common good, et cetera, et cetera, which is why we think parents are the first educators of their students and should have real and legitimate education options. But even if we were to grant that public schools weren't harming and uh, indoctrinating your kids and people's kids, um, there's many schools that are simply underperforming schools that aren't even giving kids the basics of what they need, and those are often in socioeconomically disadvantaged areas. And uh, poor kids, children, um, uh, and minority populations, there's a huge achievement gap, perhaps the biggest in the country here in Minnesota, between education performance of white students and students of color. That's simply unacceptable. It's a civil civil rights issue, and the reality is those kids can't wait. They can't wait for some mythical day in which public schools are fully funded and then only then uh, can do their job because it seems that no matter how much we fund the public schools, it's never enough. So we need to move away from systems-based thinking and more into student-centric thinking. We need to be helping the kids now because their lives are at stake, their futures are at stake, 
and we need school funding mechanisms that help every kid and not just focus on building up particular systems. So the Opportunity Scholarship Tax Credit Program empowers um, organizations to help provide scholarships and give more kids more opportunity, uh, particularly in the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, to attend a school that best fits their needs and is consistent with their values. So we have to, again, debunk the myths at the very practical level, but then also re, re, uh, rework and rewire our thinking at the level of principle away from a student's or a school-centric model and a system-centric model to a student-centric model that values and prizes opportunity and educational outcomes for all kids, uh, not just kids in the abstract. So if people want to learn more about, uh, you had mentioned the Opportunity for All Kids organization, uh, that coalition, um, could you tell us a little bit where people could learn more about that and stay connected? Opportunityforallkids.org uh, is uh, the name of our uh, school choice organization that we co-sponsor and uh, are a part of with a number of other organizations as well. Really dedicated to giving kids more educational opportunity. Uh, we're very concerned about the achievement gap here in Minnesota, but we also want to make sure that uh, parents are uh, upheld in their role as first educators, that that uh, people's educational outcomes and educational opportunities aren't tied to where their zip code is, and that everyone has the opportunity and should have the opportunity to be first educators of their kids and to give those kids those opportunities. So uh, opportunity, 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 and that's why it's called the Opportunity Scholarship, and you can learn more at opportunityforallkids.org. Wonderful. And before we go today, listeners, we are going to give you a couple practical tips on how you can start connecting your faith to your faithful citizenship, how you can start to bridge the gap between faith and politics. Jason, what do we have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, September 1st marks the World Day of Prayer for the Care of Creation, and this is something that's uh, been a new feature of Pope Francis's pontificate. Uh, but to begin to putting into practice the teachings of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, the Minnesota Catholic Conference has developed a great re- teaching resource available for use in parish small groups. We've uh, put together an educational resource called Minnesota Our Common Home. We all encourage you to read Laudato Si, the uh, encyclical of Pope Francis, but it's very long. It's not dense. It's not terribly difficult to read, but it is very long. We wanted to create a resource that translates those key concepts of the encyclical um, into a shorter, more readable format, and then identifies how they matter uh, here in Minnesota as well. In this new teaching resource, Minnesota, Our Common Home, we explore integral ecology and the key principles discussed in the encyclical Laudato Si. Um, we also focus on some issues in related to our own common home, our own environment, and how they apply in other aspects of our life as well. Some of the ideas presented in the document might be new or challenging for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Um, our premise is that you can't give what you don't have, so we need constant and ongoing formation about how to translate the principles of Catholic social teaching into the various aspects of our lives, including in the per- political arena. As Pope Francis repeats in Laudato Si, everything is connected, and as Catholics, we believe that even things that at first seem totally unrelated are, in fact, intricately woven together in God's providential design. So to help unpack this more, we've got the document, Minnesota, Our Common Home. We also have the study guide to go along with it, Minnesota, Our Common Home. Uh, There's a leader guide as well to help small group leaders uh, work through this document, and uh, study groups can be developed in parishes or outside of parishes or wherever. There's also an ecological examination of conscience, which we think helps people make it a little bit more practical. All these documents can be ordered or downloaded at our website, mncatholic.org. 
Go to mncatholic.org slash ourcommonhome. And in the coming days, you'll also be able to order uh, copies of the Small Group Study Guide and Ecological Examine as well. Just a reminder, too, about the great event we have coming up. Join all seven of Minnesota's bishops on Wednesday, September 4th for our Minnesota Catholic Conference Fall Study Day. We're going to be hearing from Tim Carney, author of the book Alienated America. He's gathered data and research while visiting, visiting diverse communities across the nation regarding communities that are thriving and failing and how social connections play an important role. Following Mr. Carney's presentation, we also have a really distinguished panel of respondents, including Brad Finstead from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but also Dean Laura Bloomberg from the Humphrey Institute as well. Audience members will certainly have an opportunity to ask questions as well. The event is free, but we need you to register by visiting mncatholic.org slash alienatedamerica. Again, just go to mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today, but don't forget that you can help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena. Become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder program. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise and support bringing the Catholic faith into public life. For more information, contact Kit, our show producer, and you can email her at show at mncatholic.org for more information about sponsorship opportunities. Don't forget, you can help create our mailbag segment. Just send your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week or in the coming weeks to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, if you missed the radio program, you can catch us on a podcast app or mncatholic.org slash podcast. We've got a lot of great episodes for uh, past hearing as well. Uh, really some quality stuff uh, to help you bridge that gap between faith and public life. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest more of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges in public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks so much, and God bless your weekend.